Hi, this is Joe Chambers. Welcome to Musicians Hall of Fame Backstage. This week's guest is the Grammy-winning rock and roll guitar hero, Steve Lukather. Steve's played on so many hit records, not only for Toto, but for Michael Jackson, Boss Gags, and the list just goes on and on. This interview was one of those ones that I just couldn't make one show about. So welcome to part one of Steve Lukather. When we come back, Steve Lukather. So we're back with Steve Lukather. Hey, man. Good to see you. Great to see you, man. Like we just said, this is 10 years we've known each other now. It's incredible. I was, you know, 10 years, just in a blink of an eye. And you took me on a, an amazing private tour of your... I don't even know how to describe this in an adjective, how wonderful this is. The history. I get near... You let me play Elvis's guitar, okay? <laughs> And well, that's, you know, it hit me hard. Some of the things that I've seen in here, and some of the people, this, you know, the famous studio musicians that many of which I, I know or knew and others that I deeply admire and the, right, the history, you just get near an instrument that, of records that are a part of my soul, my DNA. It gives me the chills, man, you know? Because I really know who all those guys are, you know? Well, you're one of them. You're in there. Well, I'm, I mean, it's an honor beyond honors. I mean, I, I'm not worthy. I'm just like, wow. And just to be in here, I mean, with all the amazing greats of all time, I, Well, it's humbling. Really. What you said was really funny because Dwayne Eddy was, was in uh, England playing a few months back, and he was with um, the Kinks, with uh, Ray, well, Ray Davies. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy Page shows Yeah, up. Jimmy. And... Uh, and he thanks for coming. He goes, Are you kidding? Dwayne Eddy is in my DNA. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty strong statement to say that from from, from Jimmy Page. You know? Well, you know, it's funny because I know uh, like Jeff Beck and probably more so than any of those other guys. And many years ago when we were hanging out, um, all the, he explained all, how much those early players meant to all the English guitar players. And hey. then the blues guys, the irony of the English guys bringing American blues to the young white people in America, and we didn't even know what it was. I heard blues from the English invasion, and then I found out where they got it from, and I went back to the egg and got into all that. You know? Yeah, I, I think my first real introduction was the animals. To Love the animals. Yeah. One of the first songs I played in one of my bands when I was nine years old was House of the Rising Sun. That's the first song that I learned. On you know that, and, and like, boy, the fact that I could do that at nine years old was that was like shredding back then. You yeah, know what I mean, nobody, well, especially a little kid, doing it. Yeah. And once I could do that, I was hooked. You know, I was hooked. We played it at a birthday party in front of the girls, and the girls, everybody's like, ah, I'm going. Before money, girls, anything. That was like the buzz of like, I have to do that. Yeah. After I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, and I pointed to George Harrison, go, I want to be that guy. Because the sound when I heard him, I didn't understand what it was. Because I, you know, I, it was like aliens landing in the backyard, like The Wizard of Oz. It goes from black and white to color. I went to color when I saw the Beatles, and my life has never been the same since. I don't think so many musicians that, that I've been able to talk to because of the museum and before. That's the same story. The Ed Sullivan Show, the Beatles. 
There was nothing oh, like it. One of the you, two. You remember? There was nothing like yeah. that. I mean, I wasn't good at sports or nothing. I was kind of bullied when I was a kid, and I was a geek and very painfully shy. And this thing hit me, and my parents thought it was kind of cute, so they bought me a Meet the Beatles and a guitar, and I still have that guitar in my room. You know, I should give it to you. You should, but you did give me one though that um, I think it means a lot to me. Of course, I love Toto, but you oh, know, thanks. you're you're. For those of you who don't know, you're so much more than than Toto. Well, I had, a, I had a pretty big career as a studio player, but Toto's an extension of our high school band. In um, you know when we started, like somewhere I was in a band. Michael Landau was the other guitar player. Mm -hmm. John Pierce on bass. Uh, Carlos Vega on drums and Jeff Picaro and David Page would come and Steve Picaro was on keyboards. He was the leader of the band at the time. And that's when my life changed, when I realized the level of musicianship that was needed. Jeff was in Steely Dan when we were in high school. And David Page was his best friend. And they were playing with Seals and Crofts and they were starting to do sessions early on. They're very like late teens, early 20s. And I went, I want to be like those guys. I, I want, you know, they were just like the upper level and we realized we were studying music and we realized we got to be that good wow we better get it together quickly what was your first session well i mean on a real record mm -hmm, uh, yeah. terrence boylan boona boylan who is uh john boylan's brother oh really yeah, and, I know john. Uh, jay winding who's a you know great keyboard player we were very very close friends at the time he introduced me and that was the first record that came out that had my name on it with like Dean Parks and Donald Fagan and Whoa. you know I mean I was like I went and bought the record when it came out and I looked at that and it was like a fantasy come true you know what I mean and from there I mean I was with a group of musicians that were you know at that time the and I just got turned on to everybody I was introduced to everybody Jeff and Carl and Carl family they turned me on to uh, not turned me on to they introduced me to so many people and that sort of morphed into this thing I was in a really cool rehearsal band with all these guys that went on to be famous musicians so at that time LA was a hotbed for, for opportunity because it was before the machines you could get in and and be like a, a do demos you know what I mean mm -hmm. for 25 bucks a tune or whatever it was and kind of doing this like minor leagues, being in the minor leagues, and you work up to the majors. And there were clubs happening, you can go sit in, you could play, everybody started to know who you were, and, and I knew them, and there was a lot of work, so people wouldn't you know, uh, recommend you. Mm -hmm. So I did a session for a guy named Phil O'Kelsey, which was in uh, Western Three, where the Beach Boys cut. Mm -hmm. And that was like, you know, I started doing stuff like this, and then I started meeting the, you know, Jeff introduced me to, you know, Larry Carlton and Rittenauer and Jay Graydon who's mentored me and is one of my best friends my, son, my oldest son's godfather Trevor and uh, you know I just got I met David Foster David Page and all that and, we, and from that and Michael Baird Lee Sklar uh, Ritt and I Ritt was on one of my first sessions or I was on one of the first sessions he was on and we to this day I'm really to this day I mean, these guys are still close friends of mine I don't get to see some of them sometimes so Toto kind of, when did that become a band? Well, Toto, before there was the name, of course, um, we were a high school band. You know, I told you some of the guys that were in it, um, we've all gone on to have great careers. Uh, we, Jeff Picaro and David Page did a, an album with Boz Skaggs called Silk Degrees, and David Hungate was the bass player. Um, and. So they went on tour, the first leg of the tour, and when they came back, 
I was just out of high school pretty much, and they, Jeff Picaro and Jay Winding and Steve Picaro, they, I guess they recommended me. You know? And so yeah. I went down, and they just called me on the phone. I didn't even really have to audition, and I went down there, and I was so excited to play. This is like, I wanted to be in that band, and the album was wailing, and mm -hmm. it was the tour to be on, and it was like, and it really, it was an amazing, Boz was so kind to me to hire me. And Les Dudek was the guitar player at the time, so I was just the second guitar player. Well, we're, I guess Les and Boz had some words, and Les left, and and Boz goes, I guess we need to get another guitar player. And Jeff Picaro stood up and pointed a stick at me, he goes, you don't need another guitar let's play something with this kid, you know? And so it was my moment, you know, I was like sink or swim, you know? And um, so we called out the song Jump Street, which is interesting because Les played a slide solo on that. And at the time, I, I mean, I'm not really a slide player per se, especially when you hear somebody like Derek Trucks, who's definitely not a slide player. <laughs> but I was, this was 1977. So I said, you know what? In my mind, I said, you know, I'm not gonna try to be anybody but me. I'm just gonna give what I got and, and just go for it and if they need to hire another guitar player after that, so be it. And I went for it, and it worked. And at the end of it, everybody was like, and, and Boss went, I guess we don't need another guitar player. And that, changed my, that moment changed my life. And also proved to Jeff and Paige that I had the chops to maybe do this. Well, prior to that, they invited me to come do a track, January 9th, 1977, I'll never forget it. And we cut one track called All Us Boys, which ended up on our second record, but... That was my first time I ever recorded with those guys. But, but how old were you then? I was 19. Oh, 18, just turned 19. That's young to be that good already. Well, I mean, we started playing, you know, when I was, I was in my first band making money when I was 11. I mean, it was 20 bucks a weekend doing little parties and, and we were sort of freakish. We played the Teenage Fair, but we weren't teenagers. So they gave us an honorary award because the teenagers were pissed off. We were, and it's a real funny story because it was the first time I ever got to play on big amps. They had this wall of acoustic amps, right? Yeah. And I was like, literally, they had to put the mic stand, mic stand all the way down. And I was playing a Jaguar that looked like it was like, it looked like a joke because I looked like a little kid holding this monster guitar. And I had a fuzz tone and a wah-wah and all this stuff. And we played some stuff and people went nuts for it because we were kids and we could actually play. Yeah. And... So, I mean, that was, a, I don't know where I'm going around the block here with this. But anyway, getting back to the Toto thing, with Boz, I mean, and, and I got that too, and Boz kind of made a big deal out of me. Like, yeah, 19 years old on guitar, which nowadays there's like shredders at five years old. But I was, there wasn't that many of us, me and Landau, and so there was guys around, but mm -hmm. it was rare. Yeah. And, um, and, and it really, Je Jeff and Paige said, and Steve, they, they wanted me to, when I heard they were starting a band, Sony Records, or then Columbia, because the record was so successful, and Paige wrote most of the songs, actually all of them, except for one, and Jeff played drums, and Hungay played bass, there was a core band there, and, they, and Columbia had found out, you're starting a band, we want you. And so we sort of had a record deal before anything, and we had done four demos prior to that tour, um, and I was part of that. I, every weekend, I go, Did I, am I going to get asked back? Am I in? He goes, well, I don't know. We might look at a couple other guys. And then there was a whole bunch. I'd be doing an overdub, and there'd be a whole bunch of the local guys like, who's this kid, man? What is this guy jumping the, jumping the queue? Like, they all thought maybe they were going to get it. And I, but I felt bad. I mean, I wasn't trying to steal anybody's gig. But I guess there was something that they saw in me that I never, didn't even see in myself. Yeah. I was so... I'm still terribly insecure, but I wanted this gig so bad. 
that I really feel that the good Lord reached down and said, okay, kid, this is your dream. You get it this time. Maybe I earned it from a past life. I don't know what it was, you know. But it all just, by that, it all happened so fast. We were in the studio a month after the end of the summer tour in 77, recording the first Toto album before we had a name. And the rest is the rest. So for those who don't know, you got the name. Oh, well, that was fun. I think, uh, I'm going to tell you the truth now. Okay, everybody said we, we didn't really want to. First off, I didn't like the name. I thought it was a dumb name. You know, I, we our high school name was Still Life. I thought, there it is. You know, that's a cool name. You know, no, nah, no, nah, we need something simple, and they wanted to do something different. And you know, I was a junior member at the time, so I didn't really have any say. And Jeff and David want to went out and had some margaritas at Lucy's El Adobe, and they went home and watched The Wizard of Oz. And I think. <laughs> They, that, that opened up the idea, and they started writing it on the tape boxes. I could, and I'd be going, Toto, Toto? I mean, the music's, you know, it's a little dog in the Wizard of Oz. It means a whole lot of different things around the world, we come to find out. But literally, that's the truth. I think that was the catalyst to them doing that, and it just sort of stuck. And then it became that, and 43 years later, I'm sitting here, and, and we, we thought, gosh, wouldn't it be great to get... 10 years, our heroes, the Beatles, got eight. They did everything they did in eight years, which mm. is tremendous, changed the world. And well, of course, we, already, we never did that. But in terms of timeline, classic rock wasn't invented then. It was only eight years after the, the Beatles broke up. I mean, mm. they broke, it was seven years. I mean, they broke up in 1970, and our band was seven years later. So everything was still on the, it's just rock and roll as mm -hmm. the, you know, it wasn't sub-genres or anything like that. So we thought, wow, if we got 10 years, wouldn't that be amazing? If we had a hit record, that'd be great. And when we got that, we thought we were off to the races. And then through that, people heard that I was playing with those guys, and I started getting calls for sessions. And I had just started doing that. Uh, probably at the end of 70, 76 into 77. And then when I got the Boz gig, everything sort of blew up. Boz, in the middle of the rehearsals, I started doing sessions and stuff like that. I was working on a session, and I got a call about 10 o'clock at night, but it was Boz going, can you come over to Hollywood Sound? I want you to do a solo on this tune called The Clue. And it was a life-changing moment, too. I went in there, and those are the days when they didn't have lots of tracks. And they were mixing soon. They were set up to mix, but they mm -hmm. needed a solo. And Ray Parker Jr. and Jay Graydon had played the guitars on the basic tracks, and I loved those guys. They're my heroes still to this day, and friends. Um, and, I, and I said, I set out, they were doing something, they said, just wait out in the hall while we do something, we'll call you in when you're ready. So, you know, I had the 335 out, and I was clocking it through the, through the door, going, I, I, this is the big moment for me, I can't blow this, I can't blow this. And I went in there, and I had a little orange squeezer that Jay Graydon used to use, and I, so I started putting on the 335, it was a little compressor, but it only had one setting, it was on, off. And I had a little, I think it was through a little, um, modded blackface Fender Princeton or something like that. And they played the, they played the track and I did that solo. And it was like, some of it was like almost an otherworldly experience. Like, was I even in the room when I played this thing? And at the end of it, everybody said, that's great, man. You know, I'm gonna, and, and you know, I wanted to make Jeff and Paige proud of me and make it, I really wanted them to ask me to be in their band. That's really yeah. where it was at. Because I heard rumblings, right, we're going to put a band together, and the boss tour happened. And it just everything from that just snowballed. And I met all these great studio players, you know, I'd be here all night naming everybody, but you know who they are. 
Uh, and the next thing you know, I was, I started getting, you know, Jay Graydon and Carlton and Rittenauer had moved on to be artists and producers and stuff like that. So it was a hole for me. And so I got the, in. The, the Les Paul. Yeah, well, that, my Les Paul that's here. Yeah. The Deluxe. It's a story, man. It's in my book, uh, but I will tell you. I mean, I, from the time I was seven years old to the time, you know, that my father bought that guitar for me when I was an early teenager, I had crap guitars. They were just thrifty drugstore broken guitars, which ironically now people covet. Yeah. At the mm-hmm. time, it was a crappy guitar. Yeah. <laughs> but, and one of my idiot friends knocked it over and broke the neck. Not off, but screwed up the headstock to the point where it wouldn't tune up very well. But I had to play that. My dad goes, you broke it. You're not going to get a new one. You broke it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and somehow I, you know, I was, I'd always borrow guitars. And kids would have great guitars that couldn't really play very well. I go, can I borrow your guitar for this gig or for this weekend or something like that? So I scammed guitars off people, but I didn't really own one. The long story short, I, you know, instead of going to the toy store, I went to the Guitar Center in Hollywood. On a, like, at least once every couple of weeks, that's, you know, get a ride down there and just... It was like going to the Formula One. They let you drive the cars, but you can't buy one. You can't mm-hmm. really. I couldn't afford one, obviously. And my dad had come back. He was in the film business, television film. He'd come back off the road. What do you, let's go hang out. What do you want to do? And I said, can we go to Guitar Center hang out? I just love to play the guitars. He said, yeah, we'll go down there. He says, maybe we'll buy an app. We'll see what's going on. So I was like, wow, I might get something. You know? And I didn't want to push it. And my dad worked hard. And... He knew how much I loved it. You know, when, when I used to get in trouble, they didn't punish me. They'd take stuff away, music stuff away, stereo or whatever. You know, you can't, you know, it's my life. Anyway, I go in there and he goes, uh, I want to try out this uh, VT22 amp, Ampeg, like the one Keith used on Exile on Main Street. Mm-hmm. So I, he, they, there was a practice room in there. So they put me in there and I, he goes, grab a guitar. So I grabbed uh, the Les Paul Deluxe. And I, which is here, and I and I put it in the room, and I started, ri- you know, I, and I cranked up the amp, and I started ripping on it, like, and I was just a little kid, you know. So people are going, who's that playing? They open the door, and they see like this little dude. Well, who's playing? Going, oh, it's actually me. And I'm sitting there. So I was ripping it, and my dad was going like this, and I had a friend of mine with me, and I said, wow, that was really cool, Dad. Thanks for taking me down. And, well, he, my dad had walked out of the room, and I was just in there shredding him, and, and not shredding, but, you know, just playing whatever I knew. I was pretty good for my age, I guess. Um, and my dad came back, and he goes, all right, man, let's get out of here. Um, and I go, okay, man, let's go. He goes, uh, let's get this stuff in the car. And I went, what do you mean? He goes, the stuff, the guitar, the amp. The I went, what do you mean? He goes, it's yours. And I'm going to start crying now. That's fantastic. Huge moment. Huge. Yeah. My yeah. father gave up getting a new car and all stuff yeah. for me. Yeah. That's, that's, that's. My mom was like, you better be nice to your father. He gave, you, you know, <laughs> gave up stuff for you. Yeah. I love my parents. I love them so much. And my dad sacrificed that for me. And that changed my life. I got yeah. this great guitar. Yeah. I mean, I think I woke up in the middle of the night to, you know, polish it. You know what yeah. I mean? The smell of the case. Yeah. You know, it was just. It changed my life. Yeah. And then it really had pro gear. And then I was starting. He goes, yeah, but you're going to start taking lessons, learn how to read and all this stuff. Which mm-hmm. I was like, okay, whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. Which was also the most incredible piece of advice. And I studied with a, a wonderful man named Jimmy Weibel, who was a jazz guy. who you know, uh, play, And he took me my raw 
person. He goes, he, I kind of went and auditioned for him. And he saw that I could play. He goes, wow, you're, you, know, you got all that rock stuff together pretty good. He goes, but in order to do it right, you have to learn how to read music. Yeah. And, he, and he was so patient. And I wasn't a great student because I had a really good ear. So I, the notes were, and plus I'm partially dyslexic, you know, so, which I didn't know at the time. I'm always like looking at stuff sideways. Not as bad to write everything backwards, but I have a little taste but, of it. You know what? They say that's a gift to a lot of people. Yeah, it know? depends. You know, like, like a gift. It, uh, at the time, I didn't realize it was it was hard though. So if you could play like this, you didn't want to go down, down, down. Right. Every good boy does find F A C F A C and all the the tricks that you learn. Well, you know what Chet said? He, they said somebody said, "Chet, do you know how to read music?" He goes, mm, "Not enough to hurt me," you know. Yeah. So. Well, you know, I mean. It was one of these kind of things, I really worked hard at it, but every time I come back, I learn it. And then he put another piece of music at the same level. And I'd be struggling, he goes, you're using your ear. Stop <laughs> using your ear. You have to read the notes. So he'd get mad at me. And I, not mean mad, but like frustrated. Like, come on, man, you're paying for these lessons. Let's, let's learn something. So, you know, I immersed myself in, and then I immersed myself in every music class that there was in school, which I really can't tell you enough. We need music in schools. No kidding, I agree with you that. You know what I mean? It's good for everything. It's good for everything in your life. It's good for your soul. On that very good note, let me take a break, and we'll be right back. The Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum has been celebrating the men and women who make the music of our lives since 2006. The Musicians Hall of Fame is the one and only museum in the world that honors the talented musicians who played on the greatest recordings of all time. It's a music city, huh? It's, uh, I mean, where else are you going to get the cats, all the cats that are in this room? The Grammy Museum Gallery at the Musicians Hall of Fame is an interactive facility that allows guests to explore the process of making a recording. Take drum lessons with Ringo Starr. Sing on stage with Ray Charles. Write a song with Desmond Child, rap with Nelly, or be Garth Brooks in our recording studio experience. Located in the heart of downtown Nashville, in the first floor of the historic Nashville Municipal Auditorium. Come see what you've heard at the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum. Hi, I'm Tyler Rudesheim, Director of Events at the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum. Located within the historic Nashville Municipal Auditorium, the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum is one of the most unique spaces in downtown Nashville, offering a versatile environment that caters to events of all sizes. Your guests will love this truly Nashville experience. We specialize in corporate dinners, music industry events, receptions, and more. Contact me today to book your next event. Welcome back to Musicians Hall of Fame backstage with Steve Lukather. So, let's jump back to what we're talking about. I, I so believe in what you said. You know, we really need music back into schools, you know? And it, it... I learned more. Let me just interrupt you and tell you that, like, you know, while I was doing in my early studies, um, we took harmony theory, sight singing, piano, and that was... Uh, and I, I just... That was, I used to cut school and come back for those classes. I paid my sister to do my homework because I was working. <laughs> I didn't want to, you know, I, and I purposely failed an aptitude test so I could be in the idiot class and not have to think. 
I knew what I wanted to do when I was a little kid. You know, what I mean, that's really. I mean, I wasn't gonna be a doctor and a lawyer. I mean, this. I was either gonna make it or not. It was like I was gonna make it or I was gonna be going. Do you want fries with that for the rest of my life? You know what I mean? There was very little in between that I knew how to do. But I will tell you that every kid should have a really job, and, and I had a couple. I had. I used to have to clean the, the toxic solvents out of a dry cleaner. Wouldn't know, the guy wouldn't even give me gloves. I was a long-haired guy, he like, hated me, like, making a buck 65 an hour, treating me like crap, and making fun of my dream. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and if you have a really terrible job, it's very motivating. Mm -hmm. My other terrible job was busting tables and washing dishes at a Japanese restaurant before Japanese restaurants were cool at all. Only Japanese people, and I was a white boy. <laughs> so they kind of, like, thought that was kind of funny. Let's have this kid wipe the table. And my hands are having chops. Having to wash dishes, you know, you know, even with the gloves, it still would get wet, and I'd, you know, chlorine smell. My friends would make fun of that for weird reasons I won't mention right now, and uh, you know, it was just it was very motivating. And then me and Landau and Michael Landau and myself, John Pierce, we got a job parking cars at Chasen's Restaurant, which was in Beverly Hills for really wealthy people. So I got to drive Ferraris and all this stuff, and we were idiots. Like, you know, don't be careful. <laughs> you give your car keys to somebody because we just would drive these cars it was like the movies at Ferris Bueller's Day Off where they get the Ferrari and they're going a thousand miles an hour and put like 500 miles on then give the guy the keys it was that's a, a much more extreme version but we were idiots you know we were punk ass kids and so it was just all these things were like but all you know all we did in school was play and Steve Picard had this unbelievable band still life and we rehearsed every day after school, and then we'd go to the Dick Grove Music School and study music there, and I was studying privately. Everybody went like this. I studied orchestration and all this stuff. I wanted to learn. I really wanted this badly. You know, I've never been a great sight reader. I could bullshit my way through any chart. You know, I learned enough to be able to do records and stuff. I had enough notes that I could, if I saw something, okay, or I could figure it out real quick. Well, or I would come up with a better part that was written that saved yeah. my ass. Yeah. I think that you and Chet had that in common. You didn't learn enough to hurt you, for sure. I learned enough to save me, but not yeah. enough to, like, you know, be on movie dates. Yeah. Because uh, I, oh, boy, I got some funny dates. Rittenauer saved me once on a, early on in my session time, we were doing a session for Gene Page. And it was one of those things, you know, uh, be at the end, it was a live session. So there was, like, full orchestra and everything, and I was new. And, and I showed up a little bit late because my car, I had a flat tire, for real. Not like one of these, the dog ate my homework things. It was really for real. And I was panic struck because I was trying to make an impression in town. And that's a bad impression to be late on a full orchestra date. So I managed to get there just barely in time. And Gene Page was famous for two takes next. He expected you to be able to. And so I figured, you know, I'll, you know this would probably be cool. You know, it's funk. I mean, come on, I can, I can do this. So I get there. I'm late, I'm sitting next to, and Rittenauer's there, and we had just done one or two, we had done two weeks with the sessions for the first time we met, and he, he took a little shine to me, I guess. And I was in awe of him. And I sat next to him, and there was guitar one and guitar two. You know, there was always the pecking, of course, Lee was in guitar one, and they left me the, the charts for guitar two. And it was like, you know, okay, M35 or whatever it was, we're gonna do this take, it was for television or something. And I got it out. And I was just struggling to get plugged into my amp, get in tune and all that stuff. And Ritz going, relax, man, this is going to be cool. And I look at my chart, and it's the piano part in D-flat <laughs> with no chord symbols anywhere. <laughs> and I think, and I looked over at Ritz's chart, and I was like, tacit, fill, 
You know, it was like just the easy. And I turned and I looked at Rit, and I must have had a look on my face like I saw my grandfather bend over in the shower. I mean, all the color left, it, and they were counting. And Gene goes, "All right, let's do, let's make one." I didn't know we were run through nothing, and it was like one, two. Rit grabbed my chart, his chart in front of mine, and he started the tune. And I'm like, I had a moment to breathe, and I looked at him, and I might have had a tear come out of my. This man saved me because there was too many people there. If I'd have choked, bad news travels fast. Yeah. They'd rather kill you than anoint you. Yeah. And he saved me. That that was a that was a moment. I and I tell the story and I kiss him to this day, 44 years, 43 years later. And go, man, you saved me. You could have let me drown, man. You could have easily taken the competition. Another guitar player? Let's lose him. I'm but sure he, you but, passed a favor on somebody. I have. But not necessarily that way, but you passed the favor. Yeah. We hope you've enjoyed part one of Steve Lukather. Be sure to catch us next time on Steve Lukather part two, Musicians Hall of Fame backstage.